before we uh, get into the word this morning, I have a very important announcement I need to make. Um, my 97-year-old father-in-law is watching us live for the first time, and uh, <clears throat> he lives down in the Socialist Republic of California, and um, so, see you, Tom. <laughs> anyway, uh, Good morning and welcome. This morning, you may or may not be aware of that. I've taken a little break from our series going through the book of Acts, and I wanted to talk about a moment that I think is more present to most of us right now, and that's the upcoming election. Uh, I brought with me a number of blank ballots. I've already filled them out, actually. You just need to sign them because we believe in voting regularly and as often as possible. No. Uh, oh, that's right. I'm getting my party's confused now. Okay. Anyway. But what I entitled this message was Win or Lose, uh, the Christian's response. And I want to begin by reading from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, verse 19, where Daniel says the following. He says, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then, God prayed, then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, praised be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. In other words, the flow of history essentially is in his hands, not in ours. He sets up kings. He disposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to the discerning, and he reveals deep hidden things. He knows what, he knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And then Daniel closed by saying, I thank and praise you, O God, my father, you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I ask as we begin by reading your word and, and reflecting upon it, that the sentiments, the heart that was in Daniel, that he prayed, Lord, would be our hearts as well. That, God, we live in turbulent and difficult and challenging times, times of great change. And we know that none of this takes you by surprise or catches you unprepared. And we ask, God, that we would look to you for your wisdom and your guidance. I pray that you would guide my comments today, that we might be led to a place where we can be even more effective than we ever thought possible going into our future. We pray for your grace, Lord, because we know that you're a God who hears prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You see, over the past 50 years, I've voted in every presidential election. This will be my 13th in a row. <clears throat> and I've voted in every midterm election possible. In fact, I have always viewed it as being part of my obligation, not only as a citizen of this great country, but also as a Christian, that I need to take my part in, in investing and voting and dealing with the issues that are confronting us as communities and nations. And with each election, there's always been these serious policy differences that uh, the nation has to make decisions regarding. Because we don't just vote for an individual, we really vote for whatever policies or programs or plans they have for the future. And fortunately, most of the time, or they rarely keep their word and do what they're going to say. But yet, nonetheless, there are some serious decisions that actually do come to pass and have a great impact upon our life. I mean, candidates have always differed about the same kind of things, about the economy or national defense or taxes, law and order, immigration, social justice. 
Yet despite those rather diametric differences at times, there's always been more that united us than divided us. We were all Americans. We respected that right. You know, the adage almost becomes cliche to the point of being corny that I may not agree with you, but I'll fight to death, defend your right to say those things. And that was kind of a a mantra that kind of guided the conscience of our culture. But that seems to be no longer the case for much of our country because in a recent poll of college students, 60% of them said that you had the right to physically assault somebody who disagreed with you or you disagreed with. It's a kind of thinking that is so foreign to people of my generation that we can't even begin to figure out where did that idea come from? Maybe video games, I don't know. But the point was we had this shared common set of core values that tied us together. It was often referred to as a Judeo-Christian ethic because it was essentially biblically based, much like the Constitution itself, which took its inspiration from the writings of the Bible. Then it becomes very, very clear when you read, for example, the second paragraph of the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, that this was a document powerfully informed by Scripture. When it reads, it basically says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Realize it or not, that's a statement that there is such a thing as absolute truth. Truths to be self-evident have to be truths that are so evident that nobody could question or doubt them. They take an absolute application to all of life. And he goes on to say that these are so self-evident, and what are they? That all men are created equal, that we are all endowed by their creator, that we did not crawl up from the slime and the ooze of the swamp like some kind of politician, but we came by the caveat of God's creative act. That we have as a consequence of that createdness in God, being made in the image of God, certain inalienable rights. In other words, these are rights that have, are absolute and unchangeable. They apply to everyone, all the time, everywhere upon the face of the earth. And the reason that this was written down was because our founding fathers understood that that was not recognized, embraced, or allowed in every place. We can lose the idea that the, re- idea, the reason our forefathers rebelled against England was because England did not recognize their equality, did not recognize their inalienable rights and it became more and more oppressive and controlling of the day-to-day lives of the people whom they were supposed to serve. Now, it didn't help anything that King George III, who was the ruler of England at the time, was basically mad, and eventually it was basically shut off to be uh, isolated because of his total insanity. But nonetheless, with an insane ruler, those who held their positions of power because of him were unwilling to take their pedal off, their foot off the pedal, but they continued to force harder and harder restrictions. But he goes on to say that what those rights are is the right to life, to liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Interesting, pursuit of happiness is an interesting adjective put in there because he doesn't say we guarantee that you'll be happy. We just say that you can make, choose the direction that you want to go in order to experience what you think will make your life the happiest. These are the concepts. This, more than anything else, has formed the basis and guided all of our legal, economic, and social systems. 
This was basically a national contract made with the citizens of the nation. But at the very head of this list of unalienable rights was, of course, what followed in the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment. And the First Amendment basically guaranteed to us something that is unique around the world. Most Americans don't even know the difference between the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Constitution. I, it's not really taught anymore in our schools. But the thing that's very important, the Declaration said we are breaking away from England and from Britain because of these reasons. And basically, the first of those says we are being treated less than what God has created us to be. But the Bill of Rights basically said, and these are the rights that we feel are inalienable, that are basically there for every man. And do you understand that the United States Constitution is the only constitution on the planet that begins and certifies that the most important thing is the freedom of religious expression? That we are free to express our religious faith any way that we deem right with our God. And this is where it becomes, this, this right, this freedom has never been challenged or abridged or modified throughout our history, even in the worst of times, in the midst of pandemics, in the midst of war, there have never been a restriction upon going to church publicly as we're doing right now until the present day. And we really have to start asking the question, why is that? What is the true motivation? Because I would say it's pretty clear today that even when the CDC and the WHO say lockdowns create more problems than they solve, that as Trump warned, the cure is going to be worse than the disease. And even as the Barrington Declaration, which hardly sees publication, written by three health experts from Yale, Harvard, and Oxford, and signed by some 71,000 other health officials around the world. And how many of you even heard about it? I brought it up at the board meeting the other day, and one of the board members goes, what's the name of that again? And I had to go online searching for it because it's buried, which is a whole other issue. But that declaration, or that constitutional amendment, said that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. And of course saying, well, we're not making laws, we're just making mandates. Look up the word mandate and you will find it has the same force as a law. You will make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So that essentially I would say that lockdowns are on their face, especially ones that last eight months and beyond, are unconstitutional. Or abridging the freedom of speech, which is an interesting dynamic when you look at an electoral cycle where one candidate has 93 times, 93% of his mentions are negative, and the other one has 97% of his mentions positive. And we find that many of his own administration are blocked on social media. Do we still have the free exercise of religion and freedom of speech? Do we have any more the freedom of the press? Or the right of people to peaceably assemble? You know, we've been warned not to celebrate Thanksgiving with your family and friends because you may turn out to be a super spreader. 
I always thought that, <clears throat> I always thought the super spreader referred to high-grade commercial fertilizer spreaders, but apparently, <laughs> well, maybe it does. Nor were we restrained from the petition to be able to petition the government for redress of our grievances. You see, for the first time in our national history, these freedoms have been abridged. And not by legislative action, but by executive orders, mandates issued that have both proven to be ineffective and unresponsive to the petition of the grievance of those who are grieved. See, from our nation's inception, these liberties have been threatened by enemies, both foreign and domestic. We've always been able to resist and overcome and push back those foreign enemies, but can we survive our current domestic enemies? Because as the cartoonist once said, I've seen the enemy and he is us. We're facing a kind of cultural cannibalism as displayed by groups of neo-Marxist groups like Black Lives Matter or Antifa, and even many within the highest levels of the political establishment. What they seek to do is rewrite history. In fact, even the New York Times, which is referred to historically as the paper of record. In other words, it's a, the primary source of information and what is true and right and accurate, published a thing called the 1619 Project, which every historian who has looked at it said it's a rabid destruction and dis distortion of American history. Basically, the whole premise is that the whole purpose of founding America was to preserve slavery. No historical foundation for it. It's just the rhetoric, and yet we find even schools are now picking it up as their curriculum on how they're going to teach about the founding of our nations. What we find is when people begin to promote what we call critical race theory. And critical theory basically says everything revolves around the powerful against the weak. Critical race theory is the idea that race is a basis by which we use our power over other people in order to control it. That's why we are basically toxically male, toxically white. We're, 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 uh, you know, we, we have all these deficiencies based upon race to separate people to teach people to look at the things that make them difference and then begin to focus upon that above and beyond everything else. That instead of e pluribus unum, we become a people who are divided into all sorts of hyphenated ethnicities. You know, that we are African-American or we're Latin American or <clears throat> we're white pobo American. I mean, we have all these Distinctions. I've never referred to myself as a European-American. This is, again, a new language that's come into our vocabulary, which redefines us not by what we have in common, but what separates us and makes us different. And language is a powerful tool. As it works into our culture, it also works into our thinking. It causes us to think about others differently. When one African-American movie star was asked by an interviewer, what, what, what does it feel like for an, an African-American to live in a white world? And he said, why do you call me an African-American or a black American? I didn't call you a white American. 
Well, that was the last we heard of him. But the simple point is, is so obvious. Why do we give in to this? Why do we play that game? Why do we buy into their verbiage? If you are a citizen of this nation, you are an American citizen. End of story. And yet there are these efforts to tear down the symbols. You see, ripping down statues indiscriminately. I often think to myself, they pulled down the statue of Abraham Lincoln. I really wonder if they even know who he is. But you see, this is such a key part of Linsky's Marxist strategy. You destroy all the symbols and all the icons of a country so that they, we can replace them with ones of our own creation. And so we find the neo-Marxist theology of today is we tear it down or turn it around, or if we can't turn it around and tear it down, we'll burn it down. This, we're told, is to accept as part of the new normal. Now, can I take issue with that phrase? We're talking about a new normal. What the new normal implies that I cannot expect or demand or even desire to go back to the way the things were before all this nonsense started. I have to accept their definition of what normal is. And I think when they came up with that, they took the wrong jar off the shelf and got the one that said Abby normal. You see? I don't think there's, there's nothing normal about our lives. They're constantly being controlled and manipulated. I remember at the beginning of the shutdown, I did one of my daily devotionals. I said, well, if you like socialism, you'll enjoy what's coming. Because this is socialism. And when I say that socialism is diametric to Christianity, what I'm telling you is that socialism says the government is God. The government will tell you what you can do and what you can do and when you can do it and how far you can do it and how long you can do it. That is basically replacing the freedom of choice with the governance of man. And the men who get into those positions rarely if ever want to give them up because they themselves are obsessed with power and control. What is most concerning to me about all of this, if someone wants to believe in certain things that I don't agree with, that's no big deal to me. I respect their ability to be wrong. And I look for the opportunity to instruct them in what is right. As I was talking with a young millennial the other day, <clears throat> and the topic of BLM came up, and I said to her, how come you support that Marxist organization? And she said to me, well, you have your opinion and I have my opinion. I said, but I also have my facts based upon, my opinion is based upon my facts, not upon my feelings. Well, never mind, I'm not going to talk about it. You know, as Jesus who warned in Luke 11, he said, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided will fall. A house divided will fall. A kingdom divided will fall. And that's not just 
spiritualizing. It's, it's talking about the reality of human dynamics. When nations become divided, they fall. I was having lunch with a man from South Africa last week when I was in Nashville. And he asked me a question. He said, I come from a Marxist socialist country. <laughs> What's wrong with America? I came here to get away from this. What's wrong with you people? I said, it's not me. It's that other person in the booth next to us. It's not me. <laughs> Noted historian Ariel Durant found as a result of her and her husband's extensive research of the history of the world. She said, a great civilization is not conquered from without until it has first destroyed itself from within. Are we on the verge of self-destruction as a nation? Do not think that it is not a possibility. The saying that many people have, well, it won't happen here, is a fool's delusion. It was George Washington in his final speech as he stepped down from the presidency when he said that the only way to preserve our nation, our republic, was if religion and morality were indispensable supports. These, he said, are the great pillars of human happiness, religion and morality. Our second president, John Adams, said similarly, we have no government armed with the power capable of contending with human passions unbridled, unbridled by morality and religion. He added, our constitution was made only for a religious and moral people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. Which explains why they want to change it. You see, increasingly what we find is that our laws are being read, read without God. So that even as politicians, or these in the one party had their convention, and they gave the Pledge of Allegiance. We pledge allegiance... To what? <laughs> they left God out twice. And that thing was scripted so carefully, I guarantee you that was not a mistake. But that has huge implications because God is the overseer of our souls. And if we forget God, which is a problem that most of us have when we get in trouble, we often as Christians act like we're practical atheists. We act as if God is not on the throne and God is not in control. Which is the reason why I begin with Daniel's statement. You raise kings up and you bring them down. And he raises them up and brings them down according to what he wants to accomplish within a nation, within a people. And when a nation of people pushes morality out the door and pushes God out the door, then we've released the wild stallion, the bridle has been taken off and the forces of evil are ready to rampage across the scene. And that's what we've seen readily. These bridles and barriers and pillars have been overtaken for the last 60 years. Rather than following the biblical injunction of train a child in the way he should go, we've allowed our children to pretty much grow up unsupervised. 
we, we leaned upon Mr. Rogers and the Muppets and all these other shows, not realizing that even within their very programs, they were feeding the seeds of Marxist socialism. So that today, I was watching cartoons with my kids, my grandkids, and I was shocked by the politics that were being promoted, even in these children's programs. We failed to keep Moses' instructions as he gave them to Israel by the word of God. When he says, these commandments are to be upon your hearts, that's where the problem starts. They're not upon our hearts. So that we can impress them on our children. And the way we impress them upon our children is by talking about them when we sit at home and when you walk around along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. You're to tie them on your hands and bind them on your foreheads and write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. That in other words, he says that the word of God and the testimony of God is to be so prominent in your life, your children will never grow up wondering what you really believe in. But they know clearly. They may not want to accept it, and many people get freaked out when their kids go the other way. Well, there are three reasons that Three things that control your child's behavior. One is their <coughs> nature. <laughs> they inherit your DNA. I say the first thing you do is look at yourself in the mirror. I know that I made my parents a living hell until I got saved. There's also how we nurture them. A child left to himself will bring his parents shame. But then there thirdly is nonsense. I just say it's sin. How does one family produce three or four kids and... and <coughs> One of them does really well and the other ones go wet crazy. Well, there's all sorts of factors. We, we do know that there's no such thing as bad kids. It's just bad parents. You're not laughing. That is a frightening thought to me right now. When you hear stuff like that, you should go, wait a minute, that's nonsense. No, there's this thing called sin. Our founding fathers structured our nation because they knew that people were evil by nature. They needed legal bridles around them. But we have to begin with our own children. Are we committed to our children knowing the truth of God? I've had people say, well, we shouldn't put kids in a wanna. They just memorize a bunch of verses. Yeah. Let me explain how it works. <clears throat> Knowledge mixed with experience makes somebody wise. But if somebody just likes to navigate life with experiences... Well, then the book of Judges says that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And then it tells us what followed. Pure, crazy chaos that people often say, why is this even in the Bible? Because God wants you to understand what happens when people rely upon their own judgment to make decisions. No, wisdom, knowledge is the beginning of wisdom. It begins by knowing what the Bible says, even if that kid doesn't choose to follow it right away, just to simply know what wisdom is. To know the word of God, know what the truth is, is foundational. They will get life experience all on their own. And when those two things look, come together, when they look at what they learn in the Bible and they look at what their friends are doing and with the way of life's working and they compare the two and saying, I think the knowledge of the Bible is the thing that I'll follow. And when they do, that's when they become wise. and they bring their mother and father joy. But we also need to keep in mind that this does not happen all of a sudden. This has been a steady march, particularly through our course 
courts by radical groups. Through the courts, we've managed to banish God from the classroom. People are surprised. When I was going to school in the 50s, we had the Ten Commandments hanging on the wall in the classroom. We opened with prayer, a public school. That was before the federal government took over the schools. I won a brand new silver dollar from Mrs. McIntyre because I was able to repeat John 3.16 faster than any kid in the class. <laughs> Had no idea what it meant. I know it's hard for you to believe that I was a talker that young, but... <clears throat> But we find that our freedom of religion has become freedom from religion. Our politics now say that, well, we should never discuss religious matters when we talk about politics. But it's interesting, those same politicians are seeking to require churches and pastors to remain silent on political issues, which was basically U.S. law until last year when President Trump overrode it and said, pastors can voice their own political convictions from their pulpits. We've banished God from science so that if you want to get a doctorate degree in geology and you believe in creationism, you'll never get through the system. And so most geologists have told me we have to pretend like we believe in evolution because they will not consider any other options Reminds me of sitting on a plane one time with a young college student. He was sitting next to me, and I was reading my Bible. It was late at night. And he said, what, is that the Bible? I said, yeah. He says, uh, do you read that? I said, all the time. He says, well, I, I don't. I've never read it. I said, why not? Because he says, well, I believe in evolution. And I looked at him, and I said, of course you do. And he said, what do you mean? I said, has anybody ever presented you evidence for the other side of the argument? And he looked at me and said, well, No. So I said, give me a piece of paper, borrow your pen. I wrote down a bunch of books. I said, go and read these books written by non-Christians, which basically say evolution has so many holes in it, we need to come up with a new myth. But we are told that we can't raise our faith in the public square. We can't say anything about it in the marketplace. And now, even now, there are certain laws that are beginning to be crafted that say we have to really monitor your hate speech over the dinner table at home. See, we're free to believe what we want. We're just not free to talk about it. Keep your faith to yourself, we're told. And it's interesting because <laughs> there's so much misinformation in fact, even within the state of Washington, I doubt any of you in this room even know this. Do you know that churches are required to pay property tax? I find it interesting. We pay all sorts of taxes. People say, oh, churches are tax-free. Really? We pay sales and property tax in the state of Washington. And for one reason, not a single church has been willing to take on the legal fight to have it revoked. Under President Obama, the executive branch became really our worst emesis. And people don't understand this unless you're on the inside of the issue. They began to pressure us to follow their definitions of marriage and sex. 
to require us to hire people who are part of the LGBTQ community. Even to this day, we have a legal team that goes through all of our documents to make sure that we're not making any errors that will give the government an opportunity to step in and begin to hold us liable for not hiring gays and trans on our staff. The only thing our Congress has done to protect us is say, well, let's make it so pastors, they can choose their pastors. But we can't choose our janitor. If he's a janitor, he's just a janitor. He can be gay if he wants, or he can be whatever he wants. But the sad thing is there are many Christian businesses, who, business owners who have been taken to court here in our own state and other places because they simply said, I won't bake a cake for a gay wedding. I won't make cards for people coming out into the transsexual lifestyle. I won't do that. It violates my conscience. And they are still locked up in the courts many times for years and years to come because they simply said, I have a point of conscience. You see, what's happened is the role of the courts has changed from an independent judiciary that serves as an objective arbiter to interpret the letter of the law as it was written. And instead, they have this term, they talk about a living document. And a living document basically means one that can change with the times. They're able to advocate novel ideas, creating new precedents that have never been envisioned by the founding fathers. I mean, take, for example, abortion. Since the time of ancient Greece, abortion was considered murder and infanticide. But somehow, through a tortured reading of the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court in interpreted infanticide as a right of personal privacy. A right of personal privacy. Obviously not the personal privacy of the unborn child. And it's amazing to me that most Americans are unaware that we have the most liberal abortion policy of any country in the world. You can't kill a baby four hours before it's delivered or even in some cases after it's been delivered in any other country in the world except right here. Even the chai comms won't let you do that. And yet I see those posts. Don't put your hands on my body. Really, lady, I'm not really interested in that at all. But it's this twisted, convoluted type of thinking that I can only think comes out of the confusion of hell itself. In a similar way, same-sex marriage was legalized under the guise of a constitutional guarantee of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Even though we had passed a law during the time that Bill Clinton was president that said marriage is between a man and a woman, the Supreme Court then ruled in 2015 that it was no longer the case that anybody can get married and really essentially has opened up the door for marriage for anybody under any circumstances. In fact, I was reading of a lady who was called off her wedding with a ghost. You know, and you may say, what, what do you mean wedding with a ghost? Yeah, she actually was planning on having a ceremony 
solemnizing her relationship with the ghost, but she found out that he had been haunting other women. <laughs> Broke it off. Sometimes when I listen to these things, I think about the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. Remember what he said to Alice? I'm under no obligation to make sense to you. <laughs> Most recently, our Supreme Court, led by, of all people, Justice Gorsuch, who was appointed by, first one appointed by Trump, gave a new interpretation to uh, Title X or Title IX, excuse me, of the civil rights law, which it reads, it prohibits discrimination by covered employers on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And Gorsuch says, well, we interpret sex. We know that the men who wrote the law thought of sex as a binary thing between male or female, but we need to give it a fuller meaning so that it includes not only people who are male and female, it's all people of every gender, no matter how they identify themselves. So it's no longer, you can no longer say, uh, Bob, you can't work anymore because that dress is really distracting everybody. You can't say that. If all of this sounds rather dissonant and, and counterintuitive to you, that's because it is. As a friend of mine used to always say, if it doesn't make sense, it's because it doesn't make sense. And that's really the, the basis of mind control. It's getting you to begin to believe the unbelievable, to accept the unacceptable, and to begin to act as if what is unbelievable and unacceptable is actually normal. And if you don't embrace those things, then you're the one who is abnormal, and your brain should be in a jar. But more to my concern is what has been the church's response through all of this. Generally, I would say that we have shrugged our shoulders and simply said, well, what can we do? In fact, even within our own faith community, I am regularly scolded for being too political. Because somehow there's this mindset in the church that politics have nothing to do with religion. I would say, tell that to John the Baptist. Tell that to, to Paul calling out Elimus, the, the counsel to the, to the deputy of the island of Crete. We find all the time, tell that to Paul when he called out the Philippian, Philippian rulers or who, who basically put him in jail without a right and he stood on his right as a Roman citizen. I mean, the whole premise of that is based upon really false conclusions, false interpretations, false applications that my view of that which governs my life is just as important as my view of Scripture. In reality, we have been overly compliant, especially in submitting to the edicts of unelected technocrats who have arbitrarily decided what and who is essential, what businesses are essential, and based upon this totally arbitrary conclusion that some things are essential and some things are non-essential, at least from the point as it is viewed from the governor's mansion. 
They've closed businesses, they've closed schools, they've closed even our churches, despite many and numerous and repeated warnings by some of the nation's leading experts from universities like Harvard or Stanford or even Oxford. Documents signed by as many as 71,000 medical professionals that say these cures are worse than the disease. They're more damaging. We're given numbers of deaths and yet, most people who have looked at it closely have found that they are hugely inflated and distorted. Somebody was just telling me of a, somebody they knew who was killed in an auto accident. They tested them for COVID, their body. Didn't find it. Tested them again. They tested them five times. Finally, they got a positive result. And they wrote it down as a COVID death. And I would like to say those are isolated incidences, but there are too many reports. I think of the gentleman who showed the letter that he had gotten from the health department saying his wife had tested positive for COVID. And he showed it to the news report. He said, she's been dead for three years. <laughs> but if you say anything like that, you will be silenced and you will be vilified. Any voice that goes contrary to the pronouncements of the high priest of scientism the Father Fauci's and the Father Redfield's, who, if you follow their pronouncements, will leave your head scratching because they contradict themselves so often. And we, you know, when I see that Dr. Fauci is presented as the nation's leading epidemiologist, my question is, who says? He's a 41-year technocrat sitting over a federal bureau who has a long list of questions about his veracity. And Redfield is even our own governor, our Senator Patty Murray, who I, I don't think is necessarily the sharpest knife in the drawer, wrote a letter of protest to President Trump putting Redfield over the CDC because he has a lot of questionable issues in his integrity and his character in past dealings with the AIDS epidemic. But if you speak out against these high priests of scientism, you will be ignored, you will be shamed, you will be shunned, or you may even be threatened with physical harm. And maybe your best hope is that before that happens, you'll be silenced and blocked by the dark lords of social media. That His Highness Mark Zuckerberg or His Holiness Jack Dorsey, if he's not on peyote at the time, or Sundar Pakai who's of Google who controls 90% of the searches by their AI engine. They write these AI programs that control what goes out and what does not go out. And finally, it's risen to a level where people or America are shocked that some of the, the president of the United States is blocked in saying something because they don't agree with it? You see, the point is that they were given a what's called a 230 exemption, which basically said because they're just a platform and they're not a publisher, that they can't be sued, they can't be held for liable or slander because they don't create the content, they're just a platform for whatever's out there. Why did the Senate bring them in for hearings last week? Because they are no longer just a platform. They are publishers. Publishers make the decision what they print and what they don't print. 
And when they began to make editorial decisions saying, this is false, this is true, they have moved away from that right to be freed from libel. They began to become part of the, the greater conversation. They're not just a platform. They are editing information. And that's why they blocked the New York Post from printing their evidence on Hunter Biden and his father's involvement in influence selling and purchasing with China, the Ukraine, Uganda, Abarkazan. <laughs> the list goes on and on. The fact that they would say, why did the, the wife of the mayor who's of Moscow, who is deceased, why did his wife give Hunter Biden $3.5 million? For what? And those kind of pieces of information are blocked because they might negatively affect the election. Do you think so? <laughs> I feel like I'm in Zoolander. I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> This has left me wondering about the state of our, the church in America. Because I believe both the church and our nation are at a very pivotal moment in their history, and I'm not telling you anything you don't already feel. And although we know the plan of God is fixed from before time and eternity, my response is not. I mean, when you think about it, when, God said, when Joshua says to the children of Israel, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. It's an interesting thing because some people say, well, it's all predestined. We just kind of got to go with all faded. We just got to go with. He says, no, I'm calling you to make a choice. I'm calling you to make a decision. Dr. Wildersmith called it God's great gamble. He gave you a free moral agency, the ability to say yes to good or no to good, yes to evil or no to evil. And that capacity, that individual limited sovereignty that we have over the direction of our life is something he expects us to hold with responsibility and to exercise based upon what scripture teaches is right and wrong. That we would choose the good and we would resist the evil. Yet today I feel like we're like Israel was in the days of the prophet Elijah, where it said, Elijah went to the people and he asked them the question, how long will you waver? Literally, the, re the original word means to hesitate, to halt, to limp along between two opinions. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, follow him. And we hear the words of Jesus, the church of Laodicea, I would that you would be hot or cold, but because you're in the middle, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. For many years, I thought that the church of Laodicea would be the church of the end times because it's the seventh and last in the order. The church that's lukewarm, either neither hot nor cold. And the reason they're lukewarm is because they said, I am rich, I have I'm acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. Self-sufficiency. Why don't I need to worry about what God wants when I've got everything I need? I'm in control of my life. Do you ever wonder why God takes people through seasons where they have no control of their life? Is it just bad luck or bad judgment? Or maybe possibly it's to teach them something. That they are not 
independent, that man does not live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The very air that you're sucking and exhaling at very moment, this ever-growing carbon footprint, which is you, is not extinguished in a moment because God has chosen to give you life. That God has chosen to let your heart continue to beat yet one more time. The Bible very clearly says that God gives life and God takes away life. But now I'm not so sure where we're Laodicea. I'm, I'm thinking more we're more like Sardis. Where in chapter 3 of Revelation, he said to them, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You know, it was Ronald Reagan who warned, he said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. He goes on to say, we didn't pass it to our children in the, in the bloodstream. It must be fought for. It must be protected and handed on for them to do the same. That's why the instructions of the Lord to Sardis was interesting. He says, wake up, or we might say, get woke. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. I hope he's talking about us. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. If you've been around at all, you know I've said it a thousand times. I call it the 1% rule of prayer. How Abraham, the angels came to Abraham and said, we're going we're gonna to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. They've, their iniquity has come, is so much over the top, we're going to destroy it. And so he pleads with the Lord. He says, Lord, if you could find 50 righteous men in the city, would you spare it? And he says, yeah, I'll spare it. And he keeps on bargaining with God. What about 45? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? If I can just, if you can just find 10. And the point is that archaeologists estimate that Sodom and Gomorrah had a population at that time of about 1,200 people. That's less than 1%. If 1%, he said, of the population will humble themselves and pray and confess their sins, I'll spare the city. My question is, do we have in America 1%? I hope so. I pray so. But it doesn't take much to move God it doesn't take much for God to show mercy, to spare. He only destroys when he says it's totally corrupted front and back. I have no idea who will win the election. But I did vote. I voted for Donald Trump. I voted for Lauren Culp. I voted for... Rogers. And if for no other reason, I did it because of their positions on abortion. I mean, to me, that's, that's kind of a no-brainer. And I've been criticized, saying, oh, you mean you're going to vote on one issue? Uh, let me see. I'm a Jew living in Nazi Germany. 
am I going to vote on this one issue of called genocide? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, the lack of logical reasoning is a little bit frustrating to me. But nevertheless, win or lose, dark days are ahead of us. We cannot assume that the enemies of our freedom and our religion are going to go away, and they are our enemies. When Antifa burnt Bibles and the flag in the streets of Portland, they were sending a message. We are facing a deeply entrenched governmental swamp of deep state people whose entire lives and careers are vested in things running the way they are. They hate Orange Man Bad. And the way I described it, and it's kind of gross, but I think this personally represents their point of view. He's like the guy who showed up uninvited at the pool party, jumped in the middle of the pool and took a crap and then got out. <laughs> and they're looking at it saying, you've ruined it for everybody. Because, you know, see, the pig trough is getting harder and harder to lap up. And it's amazing that we have a candidate who is so compromised on that very issue of graft and dishonesty and that we're told he's leading in the polls. If that's true, God have mercy on our souls. We're done already. We're done already. But you see, it's the kind of thing that Jesus warned us about. He said, watch out for false prophets slash politicians. <laughs> I'm not joking, I'm serious. Because they speak ex cathedra. They speak about things. They declare things with no evidence or proof. They just, because it comes from them, they say, this is the way it is. He said, they'll come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. It's hard to recognize their fruits because the media and social media are doing a good job of keeping most of their fruit well hidden from curious eyes. But Paul said in Timothy, he said, the spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things that are taught by demons. There's no ideology more demonic in my mind than socialism. Just look what it's done around the world. And it's staggering to me that anybody would give it a careful consideration. Except people who are so nihilistic that anarchy is the way they live their life. Paul again said to Timothy in chapter three of his last second letter, he says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll have a form of godliness, but deny its power. He said, evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted but then he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you have become convinced of. Win or lose, we can't lose sight of who the real enemy is. Yes, there are evil men and evil women, and they will go from bad to worse. But they are nothing more than pawns in the hands of the enemy. Paul said it in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. 
Maybe I should put some names in there. Our struggle is against Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer. You know? Our struggle isn't against these people. Our struggle is against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. realms. And therefore, he says, you, me, put on the full armor of God so that the, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. The day of evil is coming. We may get a four-year reprieve, but not everything in Trump's America is good. That there's still plenty of evil to go around on the planet. See, win or lose, we can't lose sight of where the real battlefield is. As Paul said to the Corinthians, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We begin by taking our own thought life captive. We begin by knowing what knowledge is given us from God and which knowledge comes from man. And we speak what we know and we pray for what we know. My pastor used to always say that there's nothing Satan wants more from you than to get you to fight him in the flesh. Because if you do, you'll lose every time. But when you pray, pray based upon the truths of God's word, he flees and is terrified. As my wife and I have prayed daily about this election, one of the things I prayed over and over, I said, God, just expose the truth about these men and these women. Expose the truth. And when Hunter forgot to pick up his laptop, I said, Jesus, thank you. It is not just here in America, but it's all over the world right now. There is a demonic spiritual attack that I often wonder if we're not seeing Second Thessalonians fulfilled when he said, the mystery of lawlessness will be revealed. I just wonder, God, is this that very mystery that you spoke of would come, that you would lift it and suddenly the decision would be very clear and simple. There is light and there is darkness, there's truth and there is falsehood. Win or lose, you and I need to remain steadfast as Jesus told his first disciples, he says, occupy till I come. Literally, it just means to engage yourself in the practical affairs of everyday life. Live your life the way you're supposed to live your life as a child of God until he comes. But how do we do that? He said in Hebrews 3, by fixing your thoughts on Jesus. He said, take care, brethren, that there is not to be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another as you see that day drawing near. Why do we meet together like this, so unsocially distanced and unmasked? Because we need to encourage one another as we see that day drawing near. There's something worse than COVID. There's, it's called apostasy. And it's coming. And win or lose, we need to remain hopeful. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, 
we are to be pitied more than all people. But then he added, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Then he added, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's no question that the current administration is a friend of the church. I mean, I, I, I don't know how else to put it. It's no, it's, and it stands in such stark contrast because the previous administration was not in any way a friend of the church. Our faith was mocked by that president. Our belief in the Bible was mocked openly and in speeches. We have a president who is an imperfect man. I had a conversation in Nashville last week with a man who is in proximity to the president. And he said to me, I can guarantee you he's a Christian. He said he's an immature Christian, but he's a Christian. In the last two weeks, he's twice given speeches where he said, somebody said to me, you're the most famous man in the world. He said, no, I am not. He said, yes, you are. He said, no, I'm not. Well, if you're not, who is? He said, Jesus Christ. He pointed up to heaven and said, I am not even having this conversation. (laughs) He did that twice in speeches this last week. Well, take it for what it means. I don't put my trust in, in that. But I know that either way, we're going to find our faith is favored or our faith will drift into disfavor. And we need to make sure that we don't change. We don't accept that normal. Because what's normal for us is to walk with Christ, to preach the gospel boldly, confident, to meet together in fellowship like this, and to understand that when the king's edict contradicts the word of God, we reject the edict because we have a higher authority that we have to submit to. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to hear what we need to hear and commit to what we know is right. I pray, Lord, that you would free people who are bound up by fear, whether it's fear of getting COVID or it's fear of being contrary to the government, it's fear of being censured or fined or being doxxed on Facebook. Or, Lord, free us from these fears. Fears to be able to stand for what we believe is true and right. Never in my life have I known a time in this nation where people are afraid to put a, a Trump uh, post in their, uh, a sign in their front yard for fear of what will be done to them. God, I pray that you would heal us and deliver us from that fearfulness and you would give us a courage and a confidence that whether we win or lose in the next election, we will stand firm, steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Grant us that courage, Father, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.